Welcome. This is Dharma Punks New York. Thanks for stopping by. The next Dharma Punks in person gathering will be Sunday, February 5th from 2 to 5. New York City Center Yoga, www.centeryogaNYC.com. The information. So please consider stopping by if you can. If you'd like to support my work, all the information is on the dharmapunksnyc.com site, the Venmo Dharma Punks NYC, and there's a Patreon page and PayPal button uh, on the website. So uh, please, if that's available to you tonight, we are talking about sleep and dreams. It's indicative of our cultural lack of attention to sleep that in the now going on 19 years, I've been a Buddhist pastor, lead teacher of Dharma Punks New York. I don't believe I've given a talk on this. That's strange indeed if you consider that there's no activity we'll do more in our life. And note that I said it's an activity. Most people don't think of sleep as an activity, but it's as vital as exercise, nutrition, and interpersonal connection for our health and well-being. It's very clear that now sleep is associated uh, with protecting us from depression, anxiety, high blood pressure. It helps the immune system. It's when we develop new memories, learn new skills, and make those new skills sharper. And uh, our very sanity rests upon it as when people are deprived of sleep, they very quickly start to show signs of psychosis. And not only that, even one night of insomnia can place even healthy individuals into uh, pre-diabetic physical states. So it's kind of a centrally important topic. And yet so little of us receive any education or um, uh, there's very, in my life, there's certainly been no institutional educational guidance on it. And it's partially due to the fact that there was so little clinical scientific curiosity into sleep. Up until the 20th century, sleep was regarded as a passive activity in which the body and brain were simply resting but doing nothing more. And now we know uh, quite the opposite. It's actually a very busy uh, series of events that are occurring that while outside of our conscious waking egoic functions associated with the left prefrontal hemisphere, the bulk of the brain is still very much active and are doing uh, as, as essential uh, events throughout the nighttime hours. So one of the most important figures in bringing attention to sleep and dreams was, of course, Sigmund Freud at the turn of the 20th century. After years of his research as a neurologist published 
one of the most important books in the history of psychology, The Interpretation of Dreams, which if any single book could be said to have changed the course of psychological uh, clinical research, that would be one of them. Um, it marked a point where there was new interest in sleep and dreaming. Freud noted that dreams are unconscious activities and therefore provide us with direct evidence of the workings of the unconscious mind. And oddly enough, before Freud, no neurologist or even clinical uh, researcher really thought that dreams would offer much of anything. But for Freud, he noted that dreams display repressed content that's too disturbing for our conscious minds to tolerate. So we have all those unpalatable sexual desires, unpleasant memories, disturbing fears, uh, events associated with shame uh, that are essentially suppressed and over time become denizens of the unconscious, compartmentalized from our awareness. But in dreams, Freud noted that these uh, this emotional content uh, is visible. And for Freud, that's important because in the attempt to keep our longings and drive out of conscious awareness, invariably they resurface and cause our what Freud said was our neurotic symptoms. So the easiest way to get a glimpse into the unconscious content that was for Freud trying to return, trying to seek our attention, was to note the content of dreams. So dream interpretation at the, uh, at least certainly in the first half of the 20th century, became a core th therapeutic process of understanding and integrating vanished or vanquished, I should say, mental content. Now, starting in the 1950s, uh, clinical researchers discovered uh, two distinct phases of sleep when rapid eye movements during sleep are recognized. And clinical research into sleep pretty soon um, noted that there are periods during which the brain has sudden spikes of activity. And then there's other times in sleep where the brain regularly has a diminishment of activity and that these events happen in cycles. So there's not just one thing. And in fact, over the course of say an eight hour period of sleep, there's four cycles where we move from what we could call uh, neural uh, lack of activation to points of intense uh, activity. And these cycles happen four times throughout the course of the night. So most of us are not aware, but we don't only have one period of night where we dream. There's actually four distinct periods throughout the course of night where uh, dreaming is good and is very likely to occur. Now, 
I'm going to start talking about the different stages of dream of sleep, and we'll get eventually to dreams. But in order, uh, the first phase or stage of dreaming, of sleep, I should say, is a transition from awakeness to sleep. And that only lasts about five minutes. And during that point, our heart rate slow, our muscle tone relaxes, and the body becomes gradually inert, and the eyes are still, however, moving. But then there's a second stage that lasts for about a half an hour. And this stage is much more um, uh, deactivating. The body temperature starts to drop. Eye movements come to a stop. And our neural activity, which is generally very chaotic, if you look at graphs of electrical firing in the brain, suddenly we start to see these smooth sine waves. And they have a name called sleep spindles. And what it means is kind of interesting. There's a central relay station in our brains called the thalamus. And the thalamus is like the kind of uh, switchboard where all of the, we could think of it as a sw an old switchboard in a, a company where all the phone calls come in and then they would get uh, ferreted off to the different departments. And the thalamus kind of does that. All the different senses from sight, sound, uh, touch, taste, smell, body sensations get shifted to the thalamus and then get sent to all of the areas of the brain where, where we're going to work on uh, recreating sight, sound, and all that for our internal experience. Well, when we're in this stage of sleep, the thalamus stops passing on all of that information. And it stops passing on all of the sensory, or at least very little of the sensory information, because it wants us to, guess what? It wants us to stay asleep. So if it kept passing on the sight, sound, touch information, then we would probably wake up. So it's during uh, this point that we that we stop sending to deeper regions of the brain for, or not deeper, but processing regions of the brain, the sensory, the sensations of external sound, for example, or touch or smell. Now, strong sensations are still passed through by the thalamus. So if you're sleeping and uh, an alarm goes off indicating smoke, your thalamus will pass on that information and wake you up but hopefully most ambient sounds will not now the third stage the brain reaches its slowest state in other words we are in uh this state of tonic immobility and, and that's when your immune system starts to strengthen you're producing new T cells, and these new T cells are practicing their defenses against foreign agents. So literally, we have these white blood cells that are literally practicing to defend us from pathogens, and they're developing adaptive immunity. And um, But there's an even more important function of this third stage of sleep, which is all of the cells in our brain are just like we are. They are consuming 
uh, food for energy to, you know, fire and, and do their job. So just as when we consume food, we produce waste, when cells consume their food, which happens to be oxygen and sugar, uh, they produce waste. These, these protein particles and other things, which are essentially stored right outside of the cells. And there's these tubes, which were just discovered. I love it. In 2013, this whole new part of the, the whole new system of the brain, the brain's waste management system. It's like the brain has literally a sewer system that takes the waste and brings the waste into the the bloodstream where it gets discarded, probably by the uh, kidneys, I would assume. So these microscopic tubes during uh, this third stage of sleep are doing all of their work. So it turns out removing the waste from the brain is vital for preventing neurodegeneration and Alzheimer's disease and cognitive decline. So one of the roles in getting enough sleep is literally essentially cleaning the brain and removing the waste particles from it, which ultimately, if not cleaned, can turn into plaques and can lead to neurodegeneration. So as you can already see, there's a lot of really important things that are going on during sleep. And these are the first three stages where there's not a lot of uh, mental, what we could call activity. It's more in terms of the immune system. It's more in terms of tissue repair. It's more in terms of uh, uh, certainly cleaning the waste out of the brain. And there's even more stuff going on. But around 90 minutes into sleeping, we reach the first, uh, we reach the fourth stage, uh, which is REM. And REM is drastically different from these previous first three stages. The first three stages are known for uh, deactivation, the brain going through ever deep, uh, slower brainwave activities from alpha to theta to delta. And then uh, also in terms of just uh, uh, lack of firing in any areas of the frontal lobe. But during uh, REM steep sleep, which lasts for 10 minutes, uh, the first time we go into it, we'll go into REM four times, probably through each night of sleep. But the first time we go into it, uh, and all the times we go into it, our eye movements suddenly start to become very rapid. And the breathing and heart rate suddenly becomes active. And muscles, which were previously completely frozen, now start to twitch. And brainwave activities, once again, can become markedly chaotic, like when we're awake. So what is REM sleep doing? And this fourth stage of sleep has probably got the greatest attention because it's the stage of sleep most associated with dreaming. Well, to understand what 
is happening during REM that's so important, we kind of have to understand what's going on throughout our waking life, which is when we're awake, there's these two regions of the brain or two uh, memory systems of the brain that are actively noting information and events we want to remember for the future or make note of for the future. So the first part is your basal lateral amygdala or your amygdala to be short. And that's kind of the fear, fight, flight, survival, alarm system of the brain. And that's going to remember all of the emotionally intense experiences that seem to have something to do with your survival. And it's going to store those. But then there's also going to be the hippocampus, which is going to note all of the tasks and skills and new information that you've learned that might be important. Now, this could be, I'm learning right now, the saxophone, heaven forbid, but I am. And I sound like goose honking all the time. But during each day I wake up, I am a little bit better. Now, why is that? Well, it's because during REM sleep, my all of the fingerings and the breath and the embouchure and the stuff that I've been practicing during the day gets encoded and gets uh, re-encoded in a way that's much more efficient. And it involves regions like the basal ganglia, which starts to make movements even more coherent and smooth. And it's instigating connections to my striatum. So during REM sleep, I'm actually learning how to play the saxophone. I'm not just learning it during daylight. I'm also learning it at night in my REM sleep. But also what's happening in REM is all those emotionally intense events of the day are being filed away in that unconscious memory system that, you know, Freud was pointing towards. And there's this entire associative network of emotional events stored and memorized by our amygdala that get connected with all of the other previous emotionally intense experiences of our lives. And they get wired very often by similar themes. So if I've experienced something in my day associated with interpersonal transgression, where somebody's been aggressive towards me, that event will activate in sleep while it's being filed away in a filing cabinet saying, which is labeled aggression, it will bring up some of the earlier experiences of interpersonal aggression I've had. So in dreams, what we are very often experiencing is the amygdala associating emotionally charged events with much older emotionally charged memory fragments in an unconscious associative web of memories. And these uh, old and new emotionally charged memories are what activate and create our nightmares, our anxiety dreams, our dreams where there's bizarre desires unfolding, and our predilection, especially towards threatening uh, events in life. It's because the amygdala has a profound influence 
on dreaming. It's also the amygdala can't really recall entire snippets. It just recalls images, disturbing images, which it links with other disturbing images. And that's why in our dreams, you might be in a situation where you're trying to get somewhere, but you can't get there. You might be trying to move, but you can't move. You might be trying to get to a meeting that you never get to. It's because our amygdala, there is no movement. It just records during the day these fragments of experiences and then will activate similar memories and create new associations. And very often, that's at least a significant role of what we are experiencing when we're dreaming. We're actually seeing the unconscious mind creating this web of memories that will then in the future uh, hopefully play a constructive role by in our day-to-day life creating feelings and somatic states in our body to help us navigate through our lives. So for instance, if you meet someone in your day-to-day life and they send you a very fast um, uh, signals of hostility, or they remind you of somebody that's from your past untrustworthy, you might in your dreams uh, remember that untrustworthy person from your past. You might even remember the person that you just met and link them together in some obscure way. But then in the future, when you interact with this person, these memory webs unconscious memory webs are going to activate strong negative feelings in you to tell you, hey, be careful. Something about this person reminds me of someone from my past that I didn't trust. And it'll create tension in your stomach. It'll create a kind of hesitancy. So in dreaming during sleep, we're creating this network of memories, and these network of memories are still active throughout our day, observing all of the interpersonal experience we get into. And sometimes when they're activated, they'll leap up and they will will create a sense of concern or anger or desire or who knows what but an emotion, a feeling will start to be activated. So that's just some of the events that are happening in REM, which is we're going to be learning and consolidating new skills, and we're going to be forming emotionally associative memories. And some of these events we will actively get to see due to the role of... um, An important region of the brain, the temporal parietal junction is the thing that allows you to remember your dreams. So people who can't remember their dreams have less activity at night in that region. The people who do remember their dreams have much greater activation of the temporal parietal. And that's kind of interesting because that's the very region of the brain that people think is the very hub of conscious awareness. So it seems that the awareness part of the brain is still functioning while we're in REM. Now, let's talk a little bit about 
how we actually fall asleep and stay asleep, there's two key processes. There's one called the adenosine, the neurotransmitter that essentially dilates blood blood vessels and creates that hunger, that drive, that thirst for sleep. That's called essentially the sleep drive uh, neurotransmitter. And during uh, our morning periods, adenosine is at its lowest. And throughout the day, it builds and it builds. And it's uh, when it's at its lowest, we're the most awake. And when we start to experience fatigue and tiredness, it's when adenosine starts to build. And this adenosine, by the way, is ex explains why people get Zoom fatigue. So if you're watching me right now and you're feeling fatigued and tired, I don't, I certainly don't blame you. I'm sure my prattling off all this obscure stuff about the brain can be rather tiring. But on top of it, to focus your attention on a screen and uh, pay attention to it, you're using up a ton of glutamate. And when you use up your glutamate, guess what? Adenosine starts to build up and that makes us tired. So adenosine is the fatigue, the sense of craving to rest, the desire to take a nap, the foggy falling asleep. It's also at times associated when it builds up with depression. People ward off adenosine uh, with caffeine because caffeine blocks those receptors. So it blocks the effects of adenosine. So when we drink caffeine for a while, the adenosine is blocked from acting. And that's one of the reasons also why sometimes when people get headaches, they drink coffee and the headaches go away because adenosine or fatigue from uh, if it's still present in the morning, um, adenosine dilates blood vessels and dilated blood vessels in the neck can cause headaches and in the head can cause headaches. So you drink caffeine, those blood vessels contract and then the headache might go away. So there you go. In case you ever wondered, Josh, why is it that when I drink caffeine, caffeine, sometimes my headaches go away now, you know, the answer. Okay. But there's a second reason why we fall asleep at night and hopefully stay asleep. And that's called your circadian clock. And uh, that's another brain region. You don't have to know any of these. For those who care, superchiasmatic nucleus, expialidocious. No, it's just the super, super chiasmatic nucleus. And it's what happens is essentially in the morning, the light hopefully stimulates your retinal cells, and that instructs your adrenal gland to secrete the alert home hormones, cortisol and adrenaline. And then late, later in the day, when light goes down after a couple of hours, your, that clock tells your pineal gland to secrete melatonin, which binds to receptors in your brain and starts to slow down activity. So melatonin also shuts down the presence of dopamine. Dopamine and melatonin are kind of an antagonists. So 
the reason why that explains why when people watch TV shows late at night or engage in social media or online shopping or consuming sugar, all of those things raise your dopamine levels and your dopamine levels diminish your melatonin levels. So if you want to fall asleep better, you avoid those things at least an hour and a half before you go to sleep. And that brings us basically to run-of-the-mill sleep hygiene. I'm only going to talk a minute about this because the last part of the talk is going to be about some of the more uh, uh, influential causes of insomnia. So basic sleep hygiene is, you know, you go to bed and wake up the same time each day. You abstain, obviously, from caffeine, um, many, many hours before you want to fall asleep. There are some people who can drink right up until they fall asleep, but uh, certainly given the role that, aden that caffeine blocks adenosine uh, receptors, I wouldn't consume it. I personally stopped drinking after the morning. Um, you want to stop looking at projecting screens like TV, laptops, phones, at least an hour and a half before sleep, because those projecting light activates not only the adrenal gland to, to secrete awakeness um, states, it's going to tell your circadian clock that light's still going on, but on top of that, it's also going to trigger the secretion of dopamine because most of the time we watch TV or social media, we become activated by the content. Uh, waking up early enough after the sun raises and see, going outside and seeing the sun while it's low in the horizon is considered to be an effective way to regulate our circadian clock. I personally never do that. I've always been a bit of a night owl and I always, I generally wake up at like 9.15 for my 10 o'clock in the morning appointment. So I'm, I've never been an early riser. So I'm talking totally in theory for me. I've never done, I've never gone out in the morning to see the early sun. That's for people who didn't grow up on the Lower East Side of Manhattan <laughs> and wasn't into punk rock like I was. But hey, people do it and it apparently works. There's no doubt that getting 20 minutes of cardio most days drastically improves sleep quality because it leads to the secretion of endorphins and anandamides. And also it tires out your body. So, of course, later on at night, the fatigue will set in. You'll fall asleep, hopefully. But the last bit, I'd like to emphasize that in my work in counseling, the underlying root of insomnia is generally not bad sleep habits. Most people know uh, by the time they're adults about good sleep habits. What activates insomnia is essentially something in our life has uh, activated our sympathetic nervous system and what's called the HPA axis or the hypothalamus pituitary adrenal glands. And that's essentially stress. Stress activates alert states and alert states do not permit us to fall asleep. And even if we do fall asleep, if something, an ongoing stressor or, or an intense stress event in our life is happening, 
then it will lead to a hyper-firing amygdala that will fire throughout the night, wake us up, or we might wake up in the morning with panic attacks, with our hearts racing, a sense of being unsafe. So there's two kinds of stress that in my work I've seen that leads constantly or frequently, I should say, to insomnia. The first is uh, a stress response to a acute external event, such as a health scare or a diagnosis about our health or a sudden uh, a spike in work demands or of course the stress of being a parent or financial stressors these are external events that have that are just new unresolved difficult to have control of experiences and in such cases one of the most effective tools for addressing insomnia is drum roll journaling Journaling has been shown by numerous studies to be to have impressive stress management benefits in that that stress, uh, I guess we could call it stress insomnia link. Journaling helps us, one, put aside intrusive thoughts because keeping the intrusive thoughts in our head will keep us up, but writing it out is a way of one, you have to use your left hemisphere to write it out. So it's going to left brain actually uh, regulates the emotional intensity, but two, putting it into language uh, regulates it. And also writing it down gives the sense that we're actually doing something about these fears. So the brain starts to think, okay, I've been taken seriously. I've written it out. So the key is don't try to be reasonable with yourself. Write out the fears, write out the things you want to do to address the issue. Just get it on paper. Don't type it on study show. Typing it on a laptop doesn't help. The laptop will wake you up. And two, you have to write it out longhand to get that the real emotion processing going. So uh, also journaling helps us construct plans to manage the situations causing stress. So that's good too. Now, the second kind of stressor that leads to insomnia, and this is the kind of stressor that I work the most with, for sure, with people, is um, very often events in our interpersonal life will provoke unresolved traumas from our childhood or from our past. So these are what we call triggered states. When something in my adult personal life reminds me of a time in my childhood when I felt unsafe, a time where I had to stay vigilant to survive, then in my present life, I'll revert my nervous system will revert to that state of staying vigilant and I'll wind up with insomnia. So for example, I grew up with a bipolar uh, alcoholic father who was at times occasionally violent and he would come home at night very often drunk. So as a result for various periods in my life, because I had to survive my childhood staying up way late, Wake, waiting to see if my father would come home drunk, 
that hypervigilant state would be active. But then also, if ever in my adult life, I had to deal with men who reminded me of my father, once again, it would trigger this hypervigilant state of alertness. And my nervous system would go back into the belief that I wasn't safe, that I hadn't, um, that if I fell asleep, I would be vulnerable. So when we're triggered in our daily lives by interpersonal events or people that remind us of childhood traumas or earlier traumas from our life, perhaps previous exes or previous people that uh, we experience a lot of emotional pain with, it activates the amygdala and the HPA axis. They chronically fire and it creates this sense that our brain is working against us. I don't know if you've ever woken up with insomnia or not been able to sleep. And it just feels like my brain is my worst enemy. It's keeping me up. It's torturing me. It's not allowing me to fall asleep. It's because something in our adult life has reminded us of a previous period in our life where the only way we felt we could survive was remaining constantly alert and vigilant. So the key in addressing acute insomnia is to show the parts of our, the inner child in us evidence that we are now safe, that we are no longer in a situation where we can be hurt. We need to constantly show that inner child evidence that we're not trapped, that we can set boundaries. We can even let go of or move away from certain dynamics. The more we show the inner child evidence that we're not back in those earlier situations that cause so much emotional pain, the more that chronic hypervigilant activation of the sympathetic nervous system will start to diminish. Now, on top of looking for safety cues, stimulating the vagal nerve helps also create an embodied state of safety. The, this, the vagal nerve is the nerve that activates your parasympathetic nervous system, and that switches off sympathetic alert states. So there are certain exercises that can help make us more relaxed. Of course, being touched or held by someone can do that, but someone's safe, but also butterfly hugs, holding hands across our chest, uh, cupping our face with our hands, visualizing places in our life where we feel safe, uh, visualizing people in our present life we associate with safety. And there's fascinatingly, there's a maneuver that most people don't know about, but is really pretty effective in uh, toning the vagal nerve. It's called the Valsalva <laughs> maneuver. It's got a name and it's pretty simple. You could practice it with me. So I'm going to, in a moment, cup my nose and my mouth. And I'm going to gently, while I've got my nose and mouth cupped, or closed, I'm going to exhale. 
and then I'm going to relax. Now, if you do that, what's happening is the air is putting pressure on your chest cavity, and that in turn is going to activate your vagal nerve. So when people do the Valsalva over a period of time, I'm not guaranteeing you that it's going to put you asleep, but it's going to help your body go into parasympathetic states. Finally, if you are ever in a period of uh, insomnia where you can't fall asleep, the most important is don't try to fall asleep. That creates a... uh, an ironic uh, process in the right hemisphere where you start to become alert for the signs that you're falling asleep. And those alert states will actually wake you up. So what we want to do is when we are in those states, get up, get out of bed, write out whatever thoughts are intrusive, write out anything you want to do the next day that will make you feel safer, write out any evidence of safety in your life. And then when you start feeling tired, then go back into bed. You want to associate your bed with sleeping, not with staying awake and fretting. So that's tonight's talk on sleep and dreaming. I hope something in there was kind of interesting. If not, I'll try to be more interesting next week. But we're going to now do an exercise about a meditation where we're going to spot safety cues in our life to show our inner child that we are safe or safer than we were in the past so that we can also do some of the parasympathetic vagal nerve toning. So thanks for listening and find a super comfortable place to relax and in all these meditations you don't have to uh, sit rigidly upright in fact it's fine if you lie down because we're going to be pretending that you're up at night and we're going to use some of the same tools that you would do to relax yourself when you first go to bed So find whatever position works for you. And then what we want to do is we want to close our eyes. Because if we were relaxing after a long day, we'd want to shut out any ambient light. Remembering that melatonin is secreted the more we're in darkness. And that helps slow brain activity. So we close our eyes and we're going to start with some paired muscle relaxation where we uh, clench and then relax muscles. And the reason we do that is because very often in our day-to-day life, we wind up with chronic muscle uh clenching, essentially, the more anxious or stressed or busy we are in life, the uh, brain sends alert, ready uh, signals to the muscles, and the muscles can stay in this kind of chronic readiness state, readiness potential state. And so what we want to do is release that chronic holding 
So you're going to want to start with squeezing your toes left and right and then relaxing, letting go, and just letting them settle. And then squeezing the arches of your feet and then releasing. Tightening the calf muscles and then releasing. Tightening the thigh muscles and then releasing. Tightening the buttocks and then releasing. Tightening the lower back and then releasing. Tightening the muscles in the stomach and then releasing. Tightening the muscles in the chest and then releasing. Tightening the muscles around the back, upper back, where the shoulders are, and then releasing. And then moving down the arms, following this process of tightening muscles. So you start with your, your shoulders and move all the way down to making fists and then releasing. And then you can make a really pinched, ugly, tight face, squinching, clenching the jaw, squinching, tightening the eyes, making a really tight face and then releasing and just allowing all the muscles to relax. And then for good measure, just one last time, squinch and tighten all the muscles in the body at once. And then release and just let go. And just allow all your arms to hang as heavily. Whatever you're, whatever's making contact, whether if you're sitting, your buttocks, just allow them to really sink into the supports if you're lying down. Just allow yourself to sink evenly into the floor. Release any resistance or any need to keep ourselves supported. Just allow your chair, your couch, your mat on the floor, your bed, whatever it is, just allow that to do all the work. And then we're going to want to bring our attention to the breath and just allow the in-breath to be as long as it 
and complete as it wants, but try to incline your exhalations to be at least as long, if not longer, than the in-breaths. And with each exhalation, just see if you can relax the muscles a little bit more. So we're going to just practice allowing the out-breath to be long and smooth and with each exhalation releasing especially any areas of the body that contract and clench when we're anxious. So we're looking to relax the belly, the chest, the throat, and the face, with each exhalation softening the eyes, softening the forehead, really slowing down the breath, and we'll just sit in silence for a while. If your mind wanders away, but it's wandering to a place that's relaxing, that's fine. But if it starts thinking and getting lost in thought, just gently escort your awareness back without any frustration. Just bring your attention back to the those long, relaxing breaths, finding any tension in your body and just release it. If you'd like, you can give yourself that hug where you cross your arms in front of your chest or hold one hand to the heart center. Just for a while, relax and restore.
So at this point, if you like, you can continue with just relaxing the body, which is a great practice, or we can bring to mind images of all that is in our life that is reliable, or people that have shown ongoing care, soothing practices and places and new skills that we've developed in our lives that are safely present. So any part of us, any any part that feels that it has to stay vigilant, alert, we want to show this part, this inner child that feels so overwhelmed and only safe when it stays on guard. We want to show it all the evidence, people that we can turn to, show it evidence of the ways now we can set boundaries and protect ourselves. Any part of us that the mind that feels that it can't relax and let go, just present it with the evidence that you can. Let go of any ongoing wars or battles we have with people. And just show and focus the attention on all that is available. Not telling ourselves, but literally visualizing and showing the regions of the brain that are vigilant, easily scared, frightened, overwhelmed, don't respond to words. They're pre-verbal regions of the brain, but they do respond to images, visual evidence that we're safe. Should just show in your mind's eye everything in your life right now that feels like an ongoing resource, shelter, safety.
So uh, thank you for your practice.